Full Cast Audio presents. Stop the train! By Geraldine McCochran. One, the Red Rock Runner. Like a bad-tempered line jumper, the train rolled up against its buffers and gave a vicious jolt. Then it gave another in the opposite direction, a jerk that traveled from one coach to the next, tipping passengers back into their seats or forward out of them. Skillets and coffee pots clattered to the floor. Above Sissy's head, a pair of spurs scraped on the coach roof, and a saddle slithered past the window, flailing its stirrups. But still, the train did not move off. From end to end came the noise of men and children imitating the guard's whistle. But another ten minutes crawled by without the train making a move, and every second the passenger car became hotter and hotter. I paid for first-class tickets, protested a latecomer, hopping up and down outside the coach door in a red-faced rage. All first-class on this one, said the Negro guard. And he offered the latecomer a leg up onto the roof. Make room, another one coming. He announced cheerily, and there was a crump and an outburst of curses from over Sissy's head. She had never in her life heard so many curses as she had heard today. She glanced sideways at the couple alongside her, a pasty pair, both shaped like loaves of bread whose dough was still rising as they cooked in the sweltering heat. She half expected their crusts to turn brown. When they had got in and plopped themselves down beside her, they had smelled of cinnamon and biscuits. But now, they smelled more like old cheese. Though she had been straining her ears for the sound all morning, Sissy never did hear the cannon, pistol shot, or whatever signal it was that set things moving. That was drowned out by the noise of the whistlers and the groaning old people. And the crying babies, and the quarreling children, and the cries of "Bought a first-class ticket!" The train simply gave another shuddering jerk, blew its own whistle, and set off. A roar swept down the train, a roar of excitement and relief mixed with protests, as those on the roof were enveloped in steam and cinders from the funnel. The faces and fluttering handkerchiefs of well-wishers fell away. And beyond the window, views opened up of flat, unbroken prairies infested with moving figures. The train, which called itself the Red Rock Runner, did not pick up speed. However, it settled instead into an ambling pace, so that the riders and wagons who had set off at the selfsame moment could keep pace with it. No one must be given an unfair advantage in this greatest of all races. The rules had stipulated twelve miles an hour for the train. A cowboy outside the train car window winked at Sissy's mother, who turned away, pretending not to see. But because the train was going no faster than the horse, the cowboy was still there an hour later, still leering in and winking. The dawdling speed was not even enough to set up a draft through the crammed train. The passengers were simply jostled and rolled together by it, like cobs of corn boiling in a pot.
How long before we get there? Asked Sissy, not remembering that she had asked seven times already. She got no answer. Her father was making the acquaintance of the other passengers in the car. How far are you thinking of going? The bread loaves nodded at him, and a handful of words fell from their mouths like peanut shells. Swedish. The black-haired woman with the spade clenched between her knees, glared at Mr. Sisney as if he had asked to see her drawers, and Sissy's mother jabbed him in the ribs. It was not the done thing to ask where fellow runners were headed. Though the people on board the Red Rock Runner might all be united in a single historical journey, each harbored separate dreams of where it was taking him. They would not endanger that dream by confiding it to a stranger. Oklahoma's Northwest had been opened up to settlers by government decree, and tens of thousands of people, desperate, ambitious, hopeful, last chance, stake all, make or break, dare all, nothing to lose people, had become, overnight, a colony of ants moving their nest. Each one was intent on grabbing his own particular patch of the patchwork earth and on staking his claim to a future. We're going to Florence, said Sissy. Unhappy to see her father snubbed, hoping to smooth the scowl off the spade-wielding woman. All right, sissy, snapped her mother. The people don't want to know our business, thanking you kindly. The breadloaves, though, had bulged forward in their seats, pop-eyed with glee. Florence, said the man, banging his chest with a blue-white hand. Florence, yeah, yeah, we go, said his wife, and her cheeks glistening with sweat, crimped like apple turnovers. Though most of the landrunners were dreaming of farms, of a future complete with a house and a barn and a cow and a harvest of wheat, there were some with different ambitions. Every forty or fifty miles, on their patchwork quilt map of Oklahoma, the government had planned for a town, a center, where those homestead farmers could go for their supplies, for their entertainment, for their hair to be cut and their cash banked, their lawsuits settled, their carts mended, their horses shod. Farmers' children needed schools, and farmers' wives needed to buy cloth, flour, and coffee. These map-born towns even had names. The one where Sissy was going was called Florence. She could imagine it now—a clapboard church, a double-fronted shop, boardwalk shaded by overhanging eaves, hitching rails, a schoolyard. It had to be better than the filthy rooming house they had left behind in Arkansas, with its rats in the basement and its flies in the milk. For the next two hours, Sissy wearied her eyes, squinting forward out of the window, hoping for a first glimpse of the rooftops of Florence, Oklahoma. But she saw nothing but landrunners, a moving sea of humanity on bicycles and buggies and horseback, in such numbers that she was sure Oklahoma could not be big enough to absorb them all. How many would ride clear through to Texas without finding a vacant quarter section to claim? How many would be disappointed? Like children left standing at the end of musical chairs, and would she be one of them? How long before we get there? She asked, but her mother only pinched her eyebrows together as if the question caused her pain, and nobody answered. Every time the train crossed a stream or stopped to replenish its water tanks, people would plop down from it like berries from a wilting stem of holly. When the train pulled away again, it left them behind. Their belongings strewn around their feet. There were little family groups, lone young men, elderly couples gasping in the heat. Their heads twitched, left, right, left, right, 
as they watched each separate carriage pass them by, while those left aboard the train showered them with good wishes and bad advice. At every stop, children's voices could be heard asking, Is this us? Is this where? And the babies, woken by the lack of movement, bleated and squawked. But no one got down from Sissy's car. It remained as tight-packed as a jar of plums. By four o'clock, Sissy had been lifted into the luggage rack to ease the cramped seating. The luggage of three families lay under and on top of her, and she drifted in and out of a nightmarish dream in which she arrived in Florence to be told, No room, no room, no chairs left, but the baker says you can sleep in the bread oven. Drowsily, she looked out the window for the millionth time, then started so violently that a frying pan on her chest drove its handle into her chin. A huge black pyramid, like a haystack but for its color, was moving across the landscape slow and stately, keeping pace with the train. She could not see the wagon that supported it or the horses that pulled the wagon. The cargo alone was visible, now and then screened by oak trees, but keeping a course parallel with the railroad tracks. It was an omen, a portent. Sissy was sure of it. In the suffocating heat, Oppressed by boxes, blankets, and bins, half awake and kept in virtual ignorance of her parents' plans, Sissy saw plainly now the dismal warning behind this gloomy sight. Coffins, stacked twelve high and twenty deep, swayed with the motion of the cart, and as they swayed, they listed toward the passengers on the Red Rock Runner, as if beckoning.